1: we made this
2: hello everyone this is tony network chief of we made this as you know our podcast network brings together a brilliant assortment of talent who talk about all kinds of pop culture content such as the episode you've just listened to or maybe you're just about to listen to we're not going anywhere but we'd love to keep the lights on for even longer if you're able to support our network on patreon for just two pounds a month you get your name in lights and and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping us produce more great audio. And for £3 a month, you'll get your name in lights, but you'll also get access to an exclusive bi-monthly podcast from the We Made This Talent pool on podcasting, pop culture, and, well, you tell us. We'll take your suggestions. For less than the price of a coffee per month, you can help keep We Made This going. Just head to patreon.com forward slash we made this that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash we made this and get the ball rolling now back to your scheduled programming
1: And welcome to The Time Is Now, Silent Green is People. My name is Kurt North, and I am here to talk about Millennium. And this week's guest, give him a hand, it's Darren
3: Mooney. Uh, I, see uh, I, did that. I, d- I do appreciate it. that one, really grew on me, as it were. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to stem sell the tide of terrible puns I'm going to make here.
1: Oh, it just it's, it's going to be full of them, isn't it? It's going to be full of full of them. Um, how are you doing, mate? How how are things going? It's been a few weeks since we last spoke on the podcast. Um, what, what what have you been up to? Have you been watching much much media out there? I know one division's currently out and all kinds of other Hi. TV shows. So how are you doing? How's it going? Oh.
3: All kinds of other TV shows and the strangest award season ever, uh, which is kind of delightful and odd and very hard to keep pace with. And obviously the glut of Netflix content, the glut of streaming content. And I've also recently got access to HBO Now, which is amazing in that like HBO Now is perhaps the best streaming service with the worst marketing team, because it has literally everything that Warner Brothers have ever produced, including things like, say, Turner Classic Movies, every single Looney Tune ever made. It's amazing. Um, everything <laughs> That was on like HBO, so the entire Golden Age of Television, pretty much every Warner Brothers film, every like DC cartoon, everything you could ever want is is on there. It's a really really great streaming service. It's just being terribly terribly sold because they don't have the same marketing team that gets you Disney Plus, for example, or gets you kind of you know Netflix or Amazon Prime. It's it's kind of fascinating. So yes, I have a deluge of content. I have so much content that I'm having difficulty keeping track of it all.
1: Ah, uh-huh, right, okay. Well, um, it's interesting as well because um, our sister show, The X-Cast, is soon um, to have a show that's on Disney Plus as well. The X-Files is coming onto the UK's um, streaming platform. Star, is it? Yeah. Is it
3: Star? Is that the kind of channel that they're opening on Disney Plus? Which is, is, is that is, what quite they're doing? Remarkable. is
1: that how they're doing it? Um, all I I've heard is believe. Just, right. Okay. Yeah. So
3: the plan is that it's going to be all the Fox content, but it's all the um and again when you say all the adult content on a streaming service it raises eyebrows. It's not that kind of adult <laughs> content. Get your mind out of the gutter listener. Um uh, but more in terms of content that doesn't necessarily fit with the brand of Disney Plus, which is obviously Marvel, Star Wars, but also Pixar and National Geographic. Um it's very much kind of like the library of stuff they've taken from Fox. It will include things and again, sorry for turning this into a mini Disney investor day seminar, <laughs> but it will eventually include things uh like say FX shows, uh, Fox shows, that sort of stuff the Hulu stuff will be coming under there as well. Mm. I believe it's going to be a separate subscription service in the States but I think it's a separate channel in the UK so right. it'll literally be just a different option up the top so you know where at the moment you select uh, Marvel or Star Wars yeah. or Pixar or National Geographic but you'll also then get a star at the top and it will include things like say I think Lost will be in there as well yeah. which is an ABC TV show is, yeah. 24 will be in there as well um, so it's, it's very much an attempt to kind of like expand the brand outside of just the family friendly content that you would associate with Disney. So again, the future is here, the deluge of content.
1: Well, what would it be amazing if they put a 67 episode TV show called Millennium on there. That would be It my- would and- <laughs>
3: And particularly if they, like, upscale it or remastered it, like, which would be fantastic. Because, again, I'm watching, rewatching Millennium for the podcast and it's still fantastic and I still adore it. And you've heard me rave about it so much over, like, the past, you know, years that we've been doing this. But, yeah, just seeing it in high definition, seeing it remastered, seeing the film stock kind of taken and kind of re-put back together, it would be absolutely beautiful. And you look at shows that have got that treatment. And I know Millennium is a cult TV show. I know Millennium doesn't have the same fan base, the same enthusiastic kind of core support that say The X-Files does. It's not a brand name like Lost. You're never going to see a Twitter commercial for Star TV Network that's like, and now we're going back to Frank Black, even though you arguably probably should. I'd be very happy to see that. But you won't. Even then, though, you look at like shows that have managed to get these remasterings and you're like, maybe... Maybe someone somewhere is kind of rooting for this. I mean, if you could remaster all of Miami Vice, surely you can find a little space in your heart for at least one season of Millennium, right? Yeah. Right?
1: that would be a great it would be fantastic even if they just went oh, we'll just throw it on there you know but as i say just they, because. Yeah, just, I'd just have it on there just because um because we'll get more viewership for it well listenership on on our podcast as well which would be great um but no if if it had the hd i mean thing if think about things like um you know the time is now for example you know stuff like that being remastered would be absolutely yeah. amazing to see um, you know, it, and it would be just just marvellous to see. And a lot of the uh, a lot of the film stuff, you know, the, a lot of the uh, the pilot, for example, would be another amazing yes. amazing one to to have remastered as well. So even if they did like a few episodes, you know, select episodes would be amazing.
3: Well, I mean, that's what they did for Star Trek The Next Generation. They did a sample uh, of a couple of episodes. I think it included, say, uh, Sins of the Father was one of them. I think Encounter of Farpoint was one of them as well. Yeah. I'm not sure what the third one was. But basically they sold it on a little Blu-ray to see if there was taste for it. And apparently there was enough taste that they let like the entire seven season run of Star Trek The Next Generation. Unfortunately, of course, it turned out that the there was not enough demand for the entire seven seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation to get them to do Deep Space Nine or Voyager. Mm. But still it was it was a beautiful thing and it kind of I do wonder if you did a sampler for Millennium, because Millennium is only three seasons. But if you did a little sampler, would you manage to attract attention? Because as you pointed out, the pilot was screened in cinemas. I have to imagine that, you know, I mean, I know, you know, it was the 90s. I know that, you know, obviously standards were a bit different in terms of kind of like visual fidelity and stuff like that. But I have to imagine that there's a print of the pilot out there that was made for cinemas in like the mid 90s yeah. that is perhaps superior quality to the one that we have on dvd um maybe that's kind of what i you know i would hope I, or i would expect i would not be surprised if that turned out to be the case but still yeah, eh, yeah. such is life yeah well the
1: um the x files preservation um guys got a load of stuff off chris carter recently including like the laptop off um, from the pilot there's the things that he's written on and and there was a print of uh, of the pilot um, of Millennium, Ooh. and um, you know, it, using the using the time is Now's Twitter handle. I was like, Kurt would be quite interested in that. If you if you want if you want to get rid of that print, <laughs> that's not a problem. Just a, just a normal poster print. Um, so he'll take that off your hands. You know, if you, you're X Files, you're not Millennium. Um, but if 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 he ever got like a print of the pilot of Millennium, I think a lot of people would be uh, crawling after him to try and get some sort of. Uh, some sort of uh, redo of it and trying to like yeah. sort of digitise it and stuff. It'd be fantastic. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about the um, episode 18 of season three, which is Bardo Fadol. It was written by Virginia Stock and Chip Johannesson, directed by Thomas J. Wright. And it aired on the 23rd of April, 1999. I've probably said this a few times over the over the last few weeks, but we're towards the back end of the of the season now. Um, we've had uh, a multitude of various different things happening. This one, we have something quite—I uh, would still like to say unique, but it's a Chip Johannesson um, episode. So something Chip Johannesson style. What do you make to? What do you make to this one? What's your general thoughts on Barda Fadal?
3: I think like Barda Adol is like arguably one of the. Like, you know, if you wanted a quintessential Chip Johannesson episode of Millennium, Bardo the Doll is pretty, pretty good. I don't think it's, I don't mean it's the best in that I don't think it's as good as say Force Majeure, which I kind of raved about when we talked about the first season. I don't think it's as good as say Luminary to pick another example uh, from the second season in terms of Johannesson's work. But I think if you wanted an illustration of like what Johannesson does and how he writes and how he approaches writing for Millennium, I think Bardo the Doll is a fascinating case study. Because, and again, simple narrative terms, this is a very, very, very straightforward plot. It's a very simple plot in terms of, like, if you were summarizing this, like, script that you were reading or, like, the one logline pitch in the writer's room, it's very straightforward. Like, Mr. Tagahashi has done terrible things. He's fleeing a Millennium Group assassin known only as Mabius, and he seeks refuge in a Buddhist temple. As his body turns against him, he seeks to atone for his crimes. Meanwhile, an FBI raid on a cargo ship turns up an ice box packed with severed hands, and the two threads turn out to be intertwined. And. You know, while some of those elements may stand out of themselves, the basic plot is fairly straightforward. You're looking for a guy. It's a foot chase. It's a race against time. We're hoping that Frank finds this guy before the assassin from the Millennium Group finds this guy. It's the most straightforward plot imaginable. It's not too hard to imagine a version of that plot that looks more like, say, collateral damage from midpoint through the third season or something like, say, 24, which Jack Bauer would do something very similar to this. But then you look at how it's actually executed. And somehow, that incredibly simple logline and setup becomes this weird meditation on everything from cloning experiments, reincarnation actual meditation, the idea of forgiveness, there's a random computer virus that's delivering plot-specific information, there's an oppressive sense of paranoia, and there's lots and lots of atmosphere heaped on top, while nothing that actually happens on screen is explained in any meaningful depth, particularly like many of the objects that drive the plot, including the aforementioned severed hands, but also even the bowl, which is a central plot focus for most of the episode. We understand the characters want these things, we understand that these things are important. And we understand that people are trying to get a hold of them or trying to track them down to stop other people from getting a hold of them. But we never really, the episode never really pauses to say, yes, but that's important because it just assumes that you can kind of run propulsively along that. And again, that's something that I kind of, I associate with Johannesson's style, where it has this kind of weird dream logic. And again, you know, we'll probably talk about it in a moment. You mentioned the the writing credit to Virginia Stack, who's actually Johannesson's uh, writing partner and wife. I think they've been together. They were together, I think, at, at 20 years roughly 20 plus years um and the reason she's apparently she contributed to a lot of his millennium scripts um but this is just the one that she got credit for and the image that she contributed to that to this episode was the tiny hands discovered in a cargo hold and apparently like that was like the spark that got johannesson writing the rest of the episode and that's an anecdote that i find absolutely fascinating because you hear it and it's just perfect. It, it, it explains so much of how a Chip Johannesson episode works. It's like you start with the weird dream imagery <laughs> and then you kind of like make a plot that involves it even though it doesn't really fit in or integrate in any real way and i say that i'm not that's not a criticism that's not something to dismiss Johanneson out of hand i don't think he's a bad writer i mean anybody who's heard me rave about how fantastic luminary is or you know how fantastic force majeure is knows that i'm a big fan of Johanneson's writing when it works and that dreamlike logic is a huge part of it i don't think it works perfectly in bardo thadol but I think that it works just enough that it's interesting at the very least, and I would argue better than quite a few of the episodes around it. So, you know, I have a I have a soft spot for Bardo the Doll, he says, having worked the very long way round to it. Well, that's great because um, the, the numbers around it,
1: uh, you are unaware of. So IMDb time, mate, IMDb time. So okay. what do you think? What do you think this has uh- got?
3: Okay, now I know IMDb tends to rate stuff higher than I do. So I'm going to inflate my my kind of verdict here. I also suspect this is a little bit too weird to score above 8. So I'm going to say 7.4.
1: No. You are at full, uh, well, you're in the sixes, unfortunately. You're at 6.9 from 169 volts. Uh, What are the
3: scores of episodes around it? Just to give us a sense of context. So Darwin's Eye, 7.7 what yep okay all right
1: that's okay that's <laughs> um, fine I, I accept that yeah and i won't go i won't go to anyone ahead of that so the next episode is yeah, seven yeah, and one yeah. but i won't go to that one but um yeah, then you've got course. saturn dreaming of mercury um we which we did which is 8.1 yeah and then force in the okay, end i can see that yeah force in the end gets the same amount and that's an interesting thing for me and per- personally what?
3: yes that is a very interesting um yeah, let's just say that when I were giving grades, it would not get the same score that this is going to get.
1: Yeah, well, I covered I covered Force in the end recently, obviously a couple of weeks ago, and I I was quite interested in some of the aspects of what he was trying to do, and and I thought it was very kind of season one-esque and, you know, bringing the religious themes in, bringing some of the, the aspects of, of what Millennium can do, and it falls completely apart at the end, but that's another yeah. story. But... Um, I would definitely rate this higher than that. But having yeah. said that, like what you've said with the rest of Chip Johannesson's work, it's towards the bottom end of the pile. But yeah. that's still, it's stuff that I remember. I remember, I, the only reason why I remember Forcing the End was that diabolical helicopter scene <laughs> at the end. Um, whereas at least with at all, I do remember things and the, the, the imagery comes out, you know, and it's a typical Chip Johannesson thing to do. So, yes. I and mean, I
3: do admire that you, you remember the forced ending of Forcing the End.
1: I did, <laughs> oh, yeah, and it certainly was a forced ending. Um, talk about personal apocalypses and like falling <laughs> yeah. off a rooftop. It was like, oh my god. Yeah. Okay, um, but anyway. But other than that, it's actually not a bad episode. But obviously, it's just it doesn't really kind of land the way it should have. So, give bear in mind that that's um, It's the same as Force in the end. What would you rate Bardolph for, for you out of ten? Then
3: now, I mean, keep in mind that I feigned surprise when I got a you know a six point nine. Was it like yeah, I feigned 6.9. outrage? Yeah. For me, this is probably going to get a six. But again, keep in mind, I'm a fairly harsh grader when it comes to the season. Forcing the end would not get a six, if we're being frank. Um, But I know, I, I think it's a solid episode. Again, part of me is like, I acknowledge I grade on a curve with the third season to this point. And I think mm. anybody who's listened to the episodes knows that I grade on a curve. So I think that, like, you know, there's... I think that you know there's uh the sound of snow and then there's literally everything else in the season. Yeah. But I think anything that scores above 5 in the fifth season and the third season is is worth is worth a watch and is is very good and is something I actually enjoy on its own terms even if I would hesitate to call it actively good. Um, in that I think it's fascinating, I think it's bold, I think it has some great stuff in there. I just think it, it is messy, it is clumsy, it is all over the place, it is needlessly complicated and, like, incredibly obtuse. Um And part of me wonders, like, you watch it and you wonder how much of this ended up on the cutting room floor. Like, was it written like this? Did something like this happen in the edit? Did it run over time? Um It, it has that kind of feel to it where it feels like the skeleton of an episode more than an episode itself. But there's a lot to like here. So, again, six which is a very kind of qualified hedging my bets grade, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I probably rate season three slightly higher than you do, but um, I think if I, memory serves me right, I would have rated something like force in the end around a 6.5 and been generous Ooh, okay. to a seven. And that was being or maybe or, or six to seven. I think it was somewhere, somewhere around there. And I think okay. uh, with uh, Darwin's eye, I was, it was uh, no Matryoshka was something similar. Um, Bard off the door has enough going for me that it's so out there and so ambiguous that I would probably, if I was, if I was allowed to go into percentage points, I probably would go around <laughs> the 6.8, 6.9, just purely right. for its like randomness. Um, but I completely agree with everything you say. It's like you've got. You, maybe it is going to look for a cereal bowl so he can have some frosties basically <laughs> yeah.
3: like, that's it it might, as, it might as well be him sitting down and having some having some like crunchies having some rice krispies as he sits down in the morning with his little red chip bowl that would be as effective at ending um, <laughs> as the one that we get
1: yeah so so it's um so it's, it's purely on on how it makes me feel more yeah. than actually the actual quality of the episode
3: but um but yeah so that's And its atmosphere is its atmosphere is great to be absolutely clear like yeah. it's it's, atm- it's it's a it's a mood piece and that mood piece is oppressive and heavy and reflective and introspective and I I do love that I think that's I really like that aspect of the episode.
1: Yeah absolutely. So um without further ado let's go uh, a little bit more deeper into the episode that is Bardo Thadol. Right, Let's get this out of the way first off. Computer viruses. What is his obsession with computer viruses? It happened in Saturn of Dreaming of Mercury the other week. <laughs> yeah. What is happening here? What, what what first off, what do you think to this opening with that random computer program? It's a virus aimed supposedly at Frank Black,
3: and it's: but triggered by Nina, unicorn princess. Isn't exactly. Very, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is again, really weird. Again, this is one of the things where it feels like kind of like zeitgeist do. Well and again this is something that I do admire about like Johansson's writing where it's very much it's it's very, and again, I hesitate, we're going to come back to the term psychedelic later on, but it's very much wired into the zeitgeist. It's very much like, ooh, there's something zimmering in the collective unconsciousness, so I'm going to put it in the episode. And there's a lot of that in here, where it feels almost like Johansson plotted this episode. I mentioned dream imagery, but just like buzzwords, where it's like, what's hot right now in the world? What are people writing about in newspapers? What are people buzzing about on the Usenet boards? What are we seeing in cinemas at the moment? And again, You know, this is 1999, as you mentioned. This is the height of kind of the Millennium Bug Paranoia. This is the, you know, if you remember 1999, if anybody listening to this podcast is old enough to remember 1999, you'll remember the panic over Y2K. And if you don't remember it, you can go back and watch the Simpsons, I think, Treehouse of Horror from that year, and it'll give you a good idea of what people were expecting to happen when the clocks hit midnight, uh, you know, on December 31st, 1999. The idea was that everything was going to collapse and fall over and everything was just going to end. And, There were, of course, a number of headlines around things like computer viruses around that time. Things like the, you know, sort of spreading of kind of worms online, the hacking of various places, the leaking of various information. I mean, you know, nowadays we're very conscious of cybersecurity, but back in the late 90s, as people were just gaining access to the internet the headlines tended to be more sensationalist they tended to be more extreme and there was a sense that computer viruses worked a lot like you would see in um this episode um as you kind of mentioned or in, in the previous episode where we talked about the mysterious hacking in saturn dreaming of mercury that just happens for no reason whatsoever and I kind of get the sense that it's, it's there because it's something that is an apologies for this, but suitably millennia mystic in that it's very much tied to this idea of the march forward of time. And I love the sequence where they're putting in the kind of like the, the, the Frank studying the, the CD, which is great because you get that wonderful reflection of him, uh, in that side of the CD. Again, Thomas J. Wright directing this does really, really great work. But when he puts it in, the fact that like Jordan is the one who has to navigate it and she's like, Oh, didn't you learn how to do this in school? Which is again one of those nice old people things where it's like, no, 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 because they, they didn't really have that kind of computer when Frank was in school. This is something that is native to Jordan. This is and again, this this I think I've argued in the past that like the big difference between the X-Files and Millennium thematically is that the X Files is preoccupied with the past, it's preoccupied with the legacy of the Second World War and like the things that our parents did that were horrible, the consequences that we face as a result of those. And Millennium is more anxious about the future. Um, It's more anxious about like Mulder's big relationship is with his father and the legacy of the actions that his father took and the loss of his sister. Frank's big relationship is with his daughter and the world that she's going to inhabit and how she's going to live her life. And here you get that wonderful small touch where it's like she just understands how this stuff works almost reflexively. While Frank... Studies it like he's looking at some ornate like Buddhist bowl, um, trying to figure out how it works. And I kind of, I really like that aspect of it, even though it, it serves no purpose whatsoever. And like computers do not work like that. And the episode never bothers to explain why Nina unicorn princess seems to have triggered this kind of like weird viral message on his computer. I will point out, I do also like that the, um, the episode kind of plays slightly with the format of Millennium where you don't always have those kind of like ominous quotes at the start of episodes you had them a lot in the first season you had them occasionally in the second and third season but i like that even here it's kind of like you know somebody saw the matrix about a month before this was released so i was like yeah this is what the future looks like and you get this kind of like point manifesto appearing on screen by the way fun fact about that um apparently the fact that it's numbered one and the fact that later on you have uh number five I don't know for sure, but if I were a betting man, I would wager that that's related to Johannesson's uh, famous 10-point manifesto for the Millennium Group. Apparently, when Johannesson came in in the third season, when he retooled the Millennium Group, he came up with a 10-point manifesto that would explain basically what the group wanted and what it was trying to accomplish. And the fact that you have two numbered bullet points appearing on various PCs or appearing in various kind of screens in this episode suggests that like maybe Johanneson was building towards that and there's a host of other stuff that happens here that's built on and never developed or suggests like ways in which millennium could unfold if it wasn't going to end uh, in a couple of episodes from now but i find it interesting that's kind of orphaned uh, in that way but yeah the, the, the computer virus is one of many many moments watching the episode where you can see johannesson writing what are people worried about right now in big bold letters on a whiteboard and just drawing lines between them yeah. Uh, and I, I think it works. I think it's atmospheric. I think it's visually striking. And I think, it you know, again, it serves a thematic purpose because it's it's very good on theme. It's very good on atmosphere. It doesn't really work in plot terms. Uh, there's no reason why this happens. There's no reason why it has to happen this way. And there's nothing that this necessarily uh drives. And again, we'll come back to maybe how the warning relates to the plot of the episode in, in a
0: That's
3: chumbacasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. BTW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
3: Few scenes. Yeah. Because it's one, of, it's one of the most delightfully clumsy um, like ways of linking a seemingly oblique prophecy to the plot of the episode in question. Because uh, it's like, yes, this is literally what you're looking for. In case you thought that you were getting an obscure reference or perhaps like a quote, no, 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 no. It was referring to a literal object. But yeah, it, it's 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 an odd one to put it frankly, like much of the episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that is, there's a lot to uh, of divulge. I mean, what's interesting with um, the opening is that it it portrays as well as uh, like joking around with the with the uh, the virus and stuff. And I'm no doubt we'll talk about its conclusion with it's almost <laughs> like, that, like, say like for example, the end of the Curse of Frank Black when he sees there's so many days remaining. There's a there's a as, and as you say, playing with that theme of um, changing the. Some of the wordings around. I mean, the uh, it was talk about the um, what did it say towards the end? It says, "Don't change the ideals; change the people." It's the people, yeah. yeah. So it's uh, that's uh, that's an interesting thing, and we'll come back to that. But um, this does say an interesting job to to begin with because it, it it puts stuff out there, like the the Buddhist temple, for example. And this is something that I wanted to touch upon uh, in a second. But talking about the Y two K just before I bit do that is that. Due in force in the end, I know I keep going back to this episode, but it's just fresh in my mind that on the radio they were talking about Y2K and the, the opening credits of that that episode. Yeah. And obviously you've got the T-O-I-G-Wacky um, or whatever it's called at the, at the beginning yeah. of the of the season as well. So it is like per- um, percolating throughout the whole season really and it does nip in and out on various different occasions. But going back to force in, force in the end, you've got – not only the christian um stuff that we've had in um you say the likes of um season two and whatever buddhism's like hovering around this episode quite yeah. significantly as well i mean what do you make to the fact that they are kind of spreading this this apocalypse around you know you've got russia you've got um, jews you've got uh, christianity you've got buddhism now i mean they, they, they are playing with this structure of the end of the world aren't they
3: they are. And again, like I mentioned, like computer viruses being a big thing in terms of Y2K. And again, it's one of the things where because nothing happened on Y2K, everyone's like, ah, was not a big deal. Um, Even though the reason why nothing happened is because people spent lots of money making sure that nothing happened. But even things like, say, the Buddhism uh, theme that runs through the episode, and obviously Bardo Thadol uh, is the name of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And we'll maybe come back uh, later on to why that's relevant and how that ties to other themes, even beyond Buddhist themes within the episode. But again, Again, there's a sense of johannesson as a writer and to be clear i think he was genuinely fascinated by buddhism i think if you look at his writing and if you look at say uh, even when he goes on and does that episode the x-files um, with donnie faster yeah. um, i think that when you look at those you see that there is these themes do interest him and you understand that like these are things that kind of fascinate him as a writer he's not necessarily hopping on a bandwagon or anything like that to be absolutely clear but at the same time late 90s, a lot of this was simmering in the collective consciousness. You look at, say, movies like Seven Years in Tibet or Martin Scorsese's Kundun, which was very famously buried by Disney because it upset China and they needed to open Mulan there. Um, you look at things like, say, on television, think even on the sister show The X-Files, um, all things would air the following season in which Scully becomes effectively a Buddhist um, because Gillian Anderson was very, very interested in what was happening there. Movies like Red Corner, which was about China, but which was driven by Richard Gere, who was one of Hollywood's most famous Buddhists at the time. So you have this sense of, like, Buddhism kind of permeating... Uh, pop culture. And I mean, outside of that, you know, that's even tied to things like, say, New Age beliefs, which around the X-Files is very much engaged with those in terms of, say, Native American belief systems, particularly in the third season, in that three-parter, Albert Hostein and various other things. And again, notable that those themes are going to come back into play at the end of the sixth season, start of the seventh season, which is around the same time that this is happening on Millennium. So it's all kind of in the zeitgeist and in the consciousness. And it, it's worth noting that this was around the time that you had the peak kind of Free Tibet movement going on as well which would drop into the background um and again, there's a separate podcast to be had about why that is um if we're being frank, it's probably because Hollywood realized that China was a very important market, and engaging with Tibetan themes in art was not going to encourage China to accept American imports, whether in terms of film and television but again it, it's something that was very much kind of simmering in the mood like of the time. And you get the sense that like with Johannesson, it's very much, well, this is just in the air. So I'm going to pick it out and bring it into a conversation. And the Buddhist stuff is, is interesting. Um And again, you're entirely right that it's, it's a stew. Um And it, and again, it's, it's a kind of a stew that the show has always been interested in. Uh, but it's particularly notable now because obviously in the second season, we talked about it a lot, it's very much driven by Christian iconography and Christian ideals. Uh, you know, the Hand of Saint Sebastian, the True Cross, for example, uh, the Virgin Mary, all that, so even the angels um, that, you know, so that uh, um, that are seen as well. Those sort of things are all drawn from Christian iconography. And yes, of course, there are episodes like A Single Blade of Grass, which tie it to Native American beliefs, whether, you know, sensitively or not that's a debate for another podcast that we've already had but i think that you're right that the third season does try to broaden it out a bit and does try to bring in other belief systems and other ideas and i think buddhism is very important here um, and again, this is one of the things where I worry that it sounds like I'm too harsh on the third season. It sounds like I'm unduly Harsh or unfair when I criticise it. There's a lot of interesting ideas in the third season of Millennium. And I think that they don't get enough credit. I think they're often overlooked and ignored when the third season is explored and looked at. Because I think they are different than the previous two seasons. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. I think one of the best things about the second season is that it's different from the first and different than the third. I don't think being different is a bad thing. And one of the things that I really admire about the third season, one of the things I think it does relatively well and relatively consistently is that the second season, and again, we talked about it ad nauseum, there's no need to go back into it, but the second season is largely about the idea of the end of the world and the apocalypse and the idea that, like, the world ends. Sometimes it ends for an entire society, as in a single blade of grass. Sometimes it just ends for a single person, as it does in Say Goodbye, Charlie. Um, sometimes it ends for a small community, as it does in Monster when it's revealed. Sometimes it happens for families, as it does in 1919. But the end of the world Always happens, and it's constantly happening, and it's happening right now as we 're speaking and that 's the theme of the second season. The second season is all about death, the inevitability of death, and the fact that death is inescapable, and it comes for all of us and then the third season, which comes after that um and again we've talked on the podcast before about you know for all the problems with the third season. You know, they inherited a show that was in a very tough position. Write your way out of, like, The Time Is Now or The Fourth Horseman. Uh, Write your way out of that and make it work. But thematically, one of the things that the third season keeps coming back to, um, and this is where the Buddhist stuff is important, is the idea of life after death. Is the idea of another life. Is the idea of reincarnation. Is the idea... That there are new beginnings and it happens even in this episode where like, you know, there's a point where Emma talks to Frank and she's trying to figure out what's happening on the boat. And Frank just literally tells her, you know what you need to do? The same thing I've been trying to do. Set aside my preconceptions and start over, you know? And you have even, I know, and obviously I know that Peter is the bad guy here and we'll talk about Peter later on. But like when Peter talks to Emma, he says, look, things come and go. The old makes way for the new nothing sinister about it. Um, and, you know, even the computer virus, you know, which has no reason to be here in terms of plot, but is still useful in terms of theme. You know, you have the technician basically saying, look, it's impossible to tell what the virus is doing because it keeps rewriting itself. And in case you don't get the metaphor and how it possibly relates to the themes of the show you're watching, Frank says, a snake eating its own tail like an Ouroboros, or perhaps the logo of the TV show in which we're appearing. And I think that all of that is kind of tied to this idea of a cycle of death and rebirth. And I think, again, acknowledging that a lot of Buddhism stuff in pop culture is very crudely drawn and accepting that I am not an expert in Buddhist culture and I'm not pretending to be. But one of the big differences uh, conceptually between Buddhism as a religious and spiritual belief as compared to like Catholicism or Christianity, which I am perhaps more vested in, is the idea of reincarnation and the idea of perpetual cycles and the idea that we don't necessarily move linearly um, through the world or through the universe in that we don't ascend to heaven and perfection as soon as our life ends. We instead are trapped in cycles that repeat over and over again until we grow and evolve and change. Um, that's something that I think fits well with the theme of the third season as a whole. So yes, you know, I know the Buddhist stuff is very much Millennium Hopping on a big cultural fad at the end of the 90s. But I think in the context of the third season, it makes sense. And I can see why it works. And I think it's it's a good idea conceptually. It kind of works. It doesn't feel as clumsy or awkward as, say, the use of Native American iconography at various points in the X-Files, or even when kind of Millennium did it in a single blade of grass back in the second season, I say, despite having a certain fondness for uh, a single blade of grass, despite those issues with it.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, um, just to, just to jump on one perfect example is the, is the ball itself, because the ball is yeah. kind of like the MacGuffin of the episode, but, during one conversation they say this could have been made yesterday so the fact that they're still using that as i said that recycle rebirth and you know something that looks or is meant to be this mcguffin of you know some sort of you know what would have been in henderson saint sebastian for example it would have been something that oh this is ancient this has got these properties and stuff this ball could have been made yesterday and it still has these properties and you know and that, that's really interesting um no doubt, we'll talk a little bit more about the the kind of the McGuffin and, and things later. But um, another person that appears in this this opening scene is Mabius. Now, Mabius, up until this point, has either been in the shadows, He was in obviously the the previous uh, previous episode of uh, Johannesson's in Skull and Bones, and he was in uh, an aspect of that. And uh, you know, but to this level where we've got the the execution style it is very overtly saying this is the millennium group this is who they are and also the fact that um you know that maybe is a a character to be reckoned with um and it kind of like does in some ways feels like a little bit of like an x-files opening in some ways because of that because it feels like he obviously is on this chase and as you mentioned at the top of the hour that you know the 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 plot is actually quite a simple plot but the, the it's the things within it that makes a difference but Having Mabius so overt here and having Peter so overt, we can bring the two together that they are front and centre part of this episode. And it's really interesting that they they use this episode to kind of propel Mabius into this limelight really.
3: Yeah, I mean, like this is one of my problems with, with Bardoth at all. It's it's one of the parts of the episode that I'm not sure works as well as it needs to, which is, it's very much the Millennium Group is evil. Yeah. Um, and like, there's no ambiguity there. I know that at one point, and I do love that maybe it sneaks into kind of the Tibetan space uh, by like creeping through an air vent from the ceiling. So he's not a demon, he's just evil Santa Claus, uh, which I kind of admire. But no, like the issue is that you've... The Millennium Group, obviously, at the start of the third season, super evil um, and very much established as super, super evil back in Exegesis and The Innocents. Uh,
0: but you got lucky land casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
4: Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. I In my dentist's office. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Got a bit more shading and complexity of characters around the middle of the season. So you got like Matryoshka, which kind of suggested that the group originated, was not like a secret ancient cult, but was maybe something that originated within the FBI after all. Or you got, say, The Sound of Snow, where like it's revealed that the group sent the tape to Frank. And like maybe part of their motivation was helping Frank work through his grief for Catherine. I mean, you could argue that they wanted to use it to kill him. But like statistically, looking at how effective those tapes are at getting people to kill themselves, like they really could have just ordered Mabius to shoot Frank in the head if that's what they wanted. So there is that kind of sense. And even within, say, the character of Peter Watts, and Watts has kind of, like, been this kind of vaguely mysterious character. He was very sinister when he appeared in Exegesis. He was very sinister when he appeared in Skulls and Bone. But then, like, when he pops up in Collateral Damage and Matrioshka, he's a much more decent, much more human character. And, like, even his relationship with with Hollis, which we'll probably come back to kind of later on. But that feels like it gets a hard reset here as well, where Bardo the Doll... Wants you to know that the Millennium Group is evil. And wants you to know that what the Millennium Group is doing is evil. And it feels like it erases. It feels like it. And it's really weird because it feels like. The first part of the third season erased, well, okay, it didn't erase, it just reset a lot of the work that the second season did, where the, you know, the first season, they were basically the Academy group. They were a bunch of FBI agents who consulted on cases. And maybe there was some vaguely mystical stuff there, you know, in episodes like Powers, Principalities, Throws of Dominions, and episodes like Lamentation. But generally speaking, they were just people who helped solve crimes. Then in the second season, they become like this ancient cult who maybe want to rule the world. Um, and maybe have some sinister plot and some sinister agenda, but also they're probably better than like secret societies that are run by Nazis. So, you know, there's that going from, for them as well. And then like the Thursdays is like, no, no, no. They are, they are evil through and through. There's no ambiguity there. They're basically like the conspirators from the X-Files. These are terrible people who are up to no good. And you should never question the idea that like them doing anything is helpful to mankind. You should never, you should never believe that they have anybody's best interests at heart except their own and it feels like a regression for like the show it feels like it strips away some of the more interesting ideas that you got in the middle of the season to make the millennium group and again very much just like the conspiracy in the x-files which is a big problem with the third season because it's like there's already a show about fbi agents dealing with a shadowy conspiracy that is up to no good and doing terrible things on television and it has a bigger budget it has a larger audience it has a much firmer grounding of what it is what it's doing and why it's doing it um and it you know again not to de- not to bash the third season of millennium too much but it has a stronger writers room um and you know i would argue a cast that is perhaps more suited to that a larger ensemble cast that is more suited to that sort of storytelling than millennium has so Turning Millennium into a pale imitation of the X-Files in the third season by making the Millennium Group a pale imitation of the conspirators um, feels like the wrong choice. It feels like a bad choice and it doesn't flatter the show in any way. Now, I mean, you could argue... That, you know, the fact that this is coming out around the same time as, well, actually shortly after, um, you know, two fathers, and one son. So like the, in theory, the X-Files has wrapped up its mythology. So maybe you could argue that Carter is going to take those ideas and put them into Millennium now. Like Millennium is going to be the conspiracy show going forward, but that's not how it works. And, and to be frank, even here, like the, Millennium Group, as it appears in the third season, is never as interesting or as developed as The Conspiracy on the X-Files was in its peak years. I'm thinking of, say, you know, the third season through the fifth season, where you have complex relationships between various parties within it. You have characters like, say, you know, Mr. X or characters like the well-manicured man or characters like the cigarette-smoking man, characters like Krychek. Instead, you just have Mabius. And, and I know that Mabius, as the show goes on, I think in Seven and One, you know, it's suggested that he's maybe a lot more than he appears to be. I mean, even here, he's a very handy man when it comes to assassination. He can speak, um, he can speak, is it Japanese or is it Chinese? I can't remember which it is that he speaks. Um, but he does, he can speak foreign languages, he can murder, he can crawl, he can infiltrate, he can do all of these things that are very impressive, but he's really just a generic henchman. He's basically, the like, he's hired out from the same firm that probably let the conspirators hire Quiet Willie on the X-Files. Like, it feels like, you know, they carpool together. And that that's not something that I think does the show any favours, if we're being frank.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think what's interesting to me, and I've only kind of projected this since and uh, formulated this when doing this podcast, I'm going to go back to Force in the End again, because... Uh, no, <laughs> the it, no, text it,
3: the quarter start of I the know. third season. It's, yeah, the, exactly. it's a masterpiece, the unspoken masterpiece of Millennium's third season. It's
1: just because uh, Marjorie David wrote that episode and she seems to have come on to it and becomes an executive producer for the rest of the show. And in Force in the End is this first inkling that, the throughout that episode it feels like em, they've gone they've risked have, having bringing along the antichrist to um to bring in emma into the millennium group basically yeah. they, they've, they've they've done this whole rigmarole about all these things happening they've let things go so far and it's all because they they could stop this at any time they could stop the coming of the next antichrist and watch the way they believe at any second, but they want to hold on so much because they want to bring Emma into the Millennium Group. And there's this aspect where Frank is even saying in that episode, like, um, don't always think, because uh, Emma's kind of, very kind of straightforward with it, as if they're the evil people. And Frank's going, and he does it in this episode, uh, you, you've alluded to it in a diff, from a different viewpoint of the thematic viewpoint of Frank saying, you know, you know, don't always think, try stop thinking that way. And Emma yeah. at the moment in the last few episodes has been very much kind of a, a character who's like, Millennium or evil or what are you doing, um, Peter? And, and and there's aspects of that. And she's been toyed with a little bit over the last couple of episodes where, you know, she she takes that information in force in the end from Peter and she actually uses it and Frank warns her at that point. So there seems to be like a, a genuine through line that they're starting to produce. I'm not saying it was it, it works. Or doesn't work it just seems to be that since Marjorie David came on there seems to be this kind of continuation of this Emma arc that's kind of kicking in
3: and I mean I on. think my my issue with the kind of like Emma arc here is that like it feels like Bardo the doll sticks out like a sore thumb where like you want the, the Emma arc here is quite interesting and again I think we talked about it when we talked about um Saturn Dreaming and Mercury where yeah. Carter has this recurring fixation with this idea of characters who are corrupted by evil or who are kind of lured by the taste of the apple. And again, you know, we pointed to the obvious example um, in like of Reyes in, um, in sort of in My Struggle 3 and 4. Uh, sorry, yeah. My Struggle 2 and 3, sorry. Where she's kind of corrupted by the cigarette-smoking man. But obviously in the show you have it like with Skinner where he's constantly pulled back and forth. You have it with Mulder in Redux 1 and Redux 2 where he's kind of offered and invited in and he kind of rejects it. So Carter's very interesting this kind of idea of the pull of evil and the seduction of evil and i think that emma hollis is theoretically the best that he does at kind of pulling this off where you get this arc about why emma is frustrated why nobody nobody is talking to emma nobody's telling emma like what's actually going on they're just telling her that oh you you need to Listen to us. You can't. Trust us on this. Don't tell anybody else this. Don't follow your own initiative. We're not going to answer any of your questions. Just follow orders and stay out of the way. And that's that's a solid arc for Emma. And that kind of, you mm-hmm. know, you could argue, you could draw a line between that and where she ends up. But the problem is that, like, I think if you go back to, say, Matrioshka uh, and forcing the end, um, you have this idea of Peter as like a seductive kind of Influence on Emma, you yeah. can see Peter being like, "Well, come over to the dark side. Come over to the Millennium Group. We will treat you as an equal. We will treat you as an insider. We can give you the answers that you want that nobody else is giving you, that you're not getting in the FBI, uh, that Frank isn't even willing to talk to you about. I now, mean, you know that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the problem with Bardo the doll is that you you go from like that setup, which is compelling and interesting and makes sense the character arc into Peter almost screwing her over and like, you know, almost getting her fired. Like he steals evidence from her, which at the very least is going to end up a reprimand on her record. Um, He's basically a mustache twirling villain. I know that he has a mustache. I know that he can't twirl it. But metaphorically, he's a mustache twirling villain here. You know, the whole, hey, bald man kind of confrontation between the two. And it feels like it's the wrong angle to take with the character. Like if you want to get from Where Emma was in the middle of the season to where, and again, I don't know how many listeners are following this for the first time and haven't seen the third season, but let's just say where the show wants Emma to be at the end of the year, you need that relationship with her and Peter to be more than Emma going, oh, well, he's totally a villain. Yeah. You know, you need you need Emma to be the one who's like maybe he's not all bad. You need Emma to be the one who's like maybe Frank doesn't understand him. Yeah. And the problem with Bardo the Doll is that it's it's the opposite. At the end you have Frank saying, well maybe some people aren't beyond redemption as if he's talking about Peter. And you have Emma saying, no no no, Peter's definitely beyond redemption, yeah. which jars with kind of the character arc that you've seen. And again, it's 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 not a huge fatal problem, but it's the kind of thing that you feel like if it had been smoothed out, the whole thing would move a lot easier. I think.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly where I was going to because the in in as I say in in um, force at the end, the way that, that Frank is the one that's going, you know, that no the Millennium Group are doing something that you're not really seeing, you know. Yeah, you're seeing it. You're seeing it as uh, you know, they're helping. That they've they've, asked, they've they've shown me this piece of evidence and it's come to the conclusion I wouldn't have found this person at the end of this episode, whereas this one seems to be the reverse. This one seems to be, oh, well, MSC's clearly now their true evil, and yeah. Frank's the one going, well, maybe they're not. And it's like, well, I don't, and that's, you know, it's like, I don't, which way are you wanting to go here? Because it doesn't really work.
3: So, yeah, like uh, particularly like on, on an arc, it's like a little loop-to-loop. It's a character loop-to-loop <laughs> in the middle of an arc. I suppose that's a snake eating its own tail, um, appropriately enough. Yeah,
1: yeah. So. I think we've worked it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
3: um
1: Yeah, so so I I do think it's it's quite it's quite interesting um from that point of view. It just seems that as you say, it seems out of place in the way that they've they've construed that. And I mean, don't get me wrong. Um, hey boardman is something that i actually remember quite vividly <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> watching
3: it but no, it's a great scene it's a really yeah. great scene and it works really you all well in its own terms and again like terry o'quinn is you could ask terry quinn terry quinn to read the phone book and he would still be great um, yeah. and he does a lot of good stuff with the material that he has but again i think he's much less interesting here you know, obviously because I'm a second season fan, I'm going to say he's much less interesting than he was in the second season, but I think he's much less interesting here than he was even back in, like, Matrioshka and Forcing the End, even though those are weaker episodes, um, as, as paradoxical as that sounds.
1: Mm. Yeah, it, it is, and um, and obviously, again, the you get um, Andy coming in and said, I told you to wait, I told you to <laughs> yeah. wait, it's like, well, where did that come from? Um, but what did you think to Andy's uh, little introduction here? Because,
0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: He he starts to talk about things about the tip off and the FBI wasn't involved. The FBI agent, but it didn't come from him. Uh, And then he obviously is saying to hold off and... Uh, and, and then don't they, they, tell
3: frank it's it's like yeah, the, the don't, don't tell frank, frank is really
1: stuff like that what do you make to him yeah
3: yeah the don't tell frank is really odd because like you think that it's going to be don't tell frank because the millennium group tipped us off and frank has a blind spot about the millennium group but it turns out no 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 it was actually uh mr takahashi who tipped them off because he kind of explains that in the buddhist temple so it's like what what, what is why doesn't he want emma to talk to frank about this yeah that's sort of, it it's like it's very confusing and it's all very much kind of to set up that paranoid kind of mood and atmosphere and again it's 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 all very strange because obviously Frank is paranoid and that's Frank's big character arc over the third season like and again it's it's very very well played by Lance Henriksen this idea of Frank as somebody who doesn't trust people i think even here like when he's talking about the computer virus there's like a real kind of like well who put it there why would they put it there and it's like Frank he's just the tech he just works here. Um, there's no need to get angry at him about this. Um, but like, and it, and happens throughout the third season as well. But yeah, the stuff with Andy and the stuff with, with Hollis, it feels very forced. And again, you can tell theoretically what it's being do what it what it's kind of like what it's being done to set up, basically, which is the idea of Emma feeling alienated from the FBI and Emma feeling like she can't trust anybody, and Emma feeling like she's being left out and being treated as an outsider. And you can see theoretically joining the dots to oh, well maybe she will join an organization that will make her feel like an insider. And the problem is that like here if you want to do that, then you need to have a contrast. You need to contrast like Frank being like, oh, well, you need to just like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. You just need to put aside your preconceptions and uh, figure it out for yourself. Yeah, you go you go do that. I, I'll I'll go deal with the main plot. You go uh, handle the, the secondary stuff in the background there. And Andy saying, well, look, I need to know that I can trust you and I need to play a power game with you involving you and your partner so you're going to keep a secret from him for some reason. um, And that sort of stuff, you know, that, but if you're doing that, then you need a contrast with the Millennium Group. You need Peter to be like, to show up and like actually explain what's going on to her instead of talk to her in metaphors and steal evidence from her. Um, Which again, it, it feels like that just, that should push her further away from the group than it does the FBI, which is contrary to what the episode seems to be trying to set up or to do with her, which is a shame because what it's trying to do is is interesting. It's just the execution is so broad and so clumsy and so, again, so ill-advised and so underexplored and unexplained.
1: Yeah, I mean, it feels like because a few episodes ago, um it'll probably enforce in the end because that's just the episode it's in my head for some reason um but um, but it was mclaren and horace uh, mclaren talking to frank about i think it was false in the end um about emma being you know she's she's a starlet she she should be running the bureau in five years and things like that kind of doing that whole molder kind of aspect thing and it was like okay well if you're going down that route that she's a promising young, young agent then that's fine but it feels like they've almost like gone, well, this is what we want to instill in throughout the episodes. And it, they kind of do it here, but they're like, it's, it feels like the one to say, Andy's saying to keep it away from Frank, to keep em- to protect Emma in some way, potentially. Yeah. I don't know. Can't really work that out. Um, but like,
3: what does he think Frank's going to do when he discovers <laughs> that? Like the tip came from a guy called Takahashi. Like it, yeah. it's really strange. It's really odd.
1: Yeah. Really, really odd. So, what do you think to moving on a little bit then? To I know we've talked about the Buddhism part of it, but what do you think to this? The the actual calligraphy that's um, going around apparently translated to our karmic fate, and there's a lot of theme about this thing of we bring things onto ourselves. You know, think the fact that you know throughout the throughout the the millennium as well, um, there is this idea that you know we're bringing about the end of the world by you know whether it be the the atomic bomb or, or whatever it may well be that there's this, um, this kind of theme around Millennium about the fact that we, we're bringing this on ourselves kind of thing, because it, it's brought up quite a lot in this episode.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, it's, it's that thing that is the least subtle metaphor ever, which is ironic <laughs> given how like, absurdly abstract the rest of the episode is. We are racing towards an apocalypse of our own creation. What's the, the translation of that calligraphy? Oh, it's an apocalypse of our own creation is the name of the ship, Frank. It's like, ah! Okay, I see what you're doing there. This is a very literal warning that we're applying here. But no, I mean, you kind of raise a good point there, which is it is a recurring motif. Like, again, this is one of the differences between the second and third season, where the third season, the second season seems to say we are we are racing towards the end of the world. The world is always going to end. It may not end at like midnight on, you know, December 31st, 1999, but everybody in their own way is eventually going to face the end of their world. And in contrast, the third season is much more ambiguous um, and much more abstract and very much concerned with the idea that we have a choice. The future that we face is determined by Ourselves, we get to shape it. We get to determine what it looks like. It is not inevitable. And again, this is something. Again, we t- we talked about it on the, the end of the second season, where like even the viral outbreak um in the at the end of the second season, it's implied that that was not caused by the Millennium Group. It's just that they're trying to exploit it. They have a vaccine for it, but it's left ambiguous as to whether or not they released it. It's something that was found in nature. It's something that just kind of happened. Whereas in the third season, it's it's much more along the lines of, well, mankind is going to determine the course of their evolution. The choices that we make are going to shape the future and that we find ourselves at a crossroads um, as to what that future is going to be. And this is kind of where I think it gets really interesting uh, and kind of in terms of themes of the kind of third season and stuff that Johannesson is building towards because, again, buzzwords, zeitgeist, stuff that was in the popular consciousness and doesn't necessarily kind of tie back to anything in particular. But that kind of second or sorry, fifth point on the manifesto, which is don't change the ideals, change the people. And this kind of suggestion that runs through the third season of Millennium And again, it's going to play out in a very, very literal manner at the end of the season. But the idea that if you can change the way that people think, if you can change the way that people perceive the world, you can therefore shape and control and alter the future as it's going to happen. It's not necessarily, and again, this is where I find kind of the third season very interesting. It's not the end of the world. It's almost just the future as a concept it's it's not that we're all going to die in a viral infection or that the universe you know the world's going to die in a nuclear explosion it's more something is going to happen that is radically going to change our understanding of how the world works and again that idea in the third season of death followed by rebirth um that's kind of what i find fascinating about the third season and, and about like the kind of buddhist themes and about the emphasis on the apocalypse of our own creation, because it very much insists that like, again, and this is where I I apologize because this is a cliche, but that kind of karmic idea, the idea that what we do is, what happens to us is shaped by our actions, that what the universe gives us back is in some way uh, comparable to what we put out into it or consummate with what we put out into it. Um, and I kind of, I, again, I, I do think that's an interesting aspect of the third season. And I think it's suggested here in, in very interesting ways. Um, in particular, like the idea, you know, don't change the ideals, change the people in an episode that is, and again, in the loosest possible terms, in no way actually connected to the plot, but very much about things like cloning which, again, is something that was in the zeitgeist in the late 90s, Dolly the Sheep and stuff like that. You know, I mean, even in the second season of Millennium, you had that emphasis on the human genome project uh, back in the episode um, with... Um, uh, um, sense and anti-sense. Sense and anti-sense, yeah, yeah. That, sort of, yeah. that episode there. Um, but even, even here you have, like, umbilical cords and stem cells. Because remember, like, remember stem cells were this huge thing at the turn of the Millennium where they were going to change absolutely everything. Again, another word that seems to have been written on the board with a red circle around it. But, like, even what we find out, um, and again, I'm, I'm just keeping this vague. People who have seen the third season will know what I'm talking about. People who are watching along will hopefully be oblivious until it happens. But towards the end of the third season, we find a very literal way in which the Millennium Group is not changing ideals, but is in fact literally changing people. And it's notable that that gets a very very, very literal shout out here in terms of iconography, in that when Takahashi dies, you'll notice that the blood pools from his head. The consciousness is liberated through the head. And again, it's, it's this idea. And again, Johannesson comes back to it. Um, I think it's a key plot point, if I remember correctly, from the Donnie Faster episode that he does uh, in the seventh season. Um, trepanning the idea of kind of like creating a hole in your head, which was very popular, I think, in 60s and 70s counterculture. But the idea was that you would drill a hole in your head and it would allow oxygen to get into the blood and into the brain, and that would speed up your thinking. And that imagery is very kind of very, very, very much suggested, both here in the idea of blood leaving the skull, leaving through the head, but also when it's revealed towards the end of the season in the two-part finale exactly how the Millennium Group has been changing uh individuals which is kind of interesting as well I think
1: yeah and you've only got to look at the the way the the Millennium Group do the assassinations as well I mean that that's touched upon in here that you know it's a good sign at the end um when when he has died that that they as you say the blood is rolling from the head but he would have shot him in the head but it would have been the back of the head and, and the like. So it's, that's an interesting thing in itself.
3: And, and Frank, says, Frank says that when he's on the boat. He's like, I think the Millennium Group, and why do you think that? Look at the method of execution. As soon as I saw the method of execution, I thought of the Millennium Group.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's something that's, that's kind of reoccurring throughout the third season. But um, talking about umbilical cords and stem cells and uh, you know, trying to regrow the Osmond family or, or whatever he's trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> He's keeping it handy. He's keeping it very handy. I mean, th- this is where it, it kind of goes a bit out there. Um, <laughs> Just a bit. This so, is where it is. Like, yeah. Not
3: not in tray panning. Uh, yeah. Not in computer viruses <laughs> activated by uh, unicorn princesses. No, no, no. This is where it really goes. Yeah.
1: So we've got cloning. We've got growing hands and the like. I mean, what did, <laughs> what did you make to this on your first ever view of this? Because it was quite a unique, what, they're growing? It's like, Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
3: they're little baby hands but they have grown man fingerprints on them which i kind of love <laughs> <laughs> all just, you have to do
1: I, <laughs> you can imagine those um those wrestling hands you know the big hands that people use at wrestling matches yeah. where they've got waving people
3: I'm, yeah i'm kind of wondering do they stop growing like I, that's the thing it's like i'm wondering why are they just growing hands like, it, it really doesn't seem practical. What are you planning? What are you going to do with all of those hands, like, <laughs> when you're done? I know that, like, presumably, like, the infection seems to start in his hand. So maybe they were going to, like, amputate and attach a clean one? That seems rather odd, but then why do you need like nine extra hands? Like what like what what is the end goal here? What is the plan? Surely if you were growing something, you would start with, I don't know, like the brain or something, or like a vital organ, as opposed to just the hand. Um, but again, it is a striking imagery. And it is a striking piece of imagery. And again, we noted that like with and he's talked about this. Literally in this case, it was the image. And it is a striking image. Like I remember Bardo the Doll because I remember the hands just stuck in ice for <laughs> no reason whatsoever with no idea of where they're going. Maybe there's like a big hand transplant market that like the mining the Group are planning on breaking into. Uh, maybe it's just like a side hustle for them. You know, like you hear about all these kind of illegal organ transplants, people waking up with their kidneys missing. Maybe there's a real trade in hands that's just been going on that we haven't been keeping track of. But yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre and it makes no real sense. But again, it works thematically because it's this idea of literally changing people in that you are literally growing new people or copies of people or replacing people. And the idea, again, that the kind of like stereotypical Buddhist thing, where it's very much along the lines of, well, death and reincarnation, where Takahashi's going to die but there will be parts of him that live on and it's really again very strange I'm not the, let's just call the science questionable and leave it at that but the moment where like the severed hands are still alive and growing despite the fact that one assumes like they cannot be receiving nutrients they're like there's no way that there's any circulatory system going into them to supply the material that they would need to grow where are they generating mass from um, but the idea that yeah that they live on even beyond him which again is, is very thematically rich and very much kind of engaged with the kind of ideas and themes of the episode and again it kind of fits with this this theme and suggestion i mean it's notable that his big um the big paper the paper that emma actually mentions is transubstantiation of the human species which is biology as as human al- as human alchemy, uh, which again is is its Christian imagery. Transubstantiation, obviously, being in Catholic faith, the belief that the wine and the bread are literally transformed um, into the blood and um, flesh of Jesus Christ, um, which is notably one of the big differences for listeners who are not aware between Catholicism and Protestantism, where Protestantism believe that it is a metaphor that the bread and the wine are a metaphor for consuming the flesh and blood of Jesus, whereas Catholicism insists. That that it is actually literally transformed into the body and blood of Christ, um, which is kind of, and again, kind of interesting. So you have this idea, and again, it, it's, it's that theme of don't change the ideals, like literally just change the people. So transubstantiate people. And again, it, it's, it's that theme that runs through the season and runs through the episode where death is not death, death is just a point of rebirth or reinvention so the idea is that human beings can be transformed and again this is this is kind of where it gets trippy because i think we talked about it we talked about with chris the sound of snow the very heavy influence of kind of psychedelia um on the third season millennium in particular and again the Buddhist themes are all tied up in that because obviously like a large part of, you know, the kind of psychedelic movement in the 60s was the embrace um, through the occult movement of kind of Eastern philosophies. And again, it's notable that like Bardot et al, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, while it has that kind of obvious spiritual significance um, in terms of Buddhism, and that it's very much about this idea of helping the the soul uh, move through the bardo which is the intermediate state um, that the disincarnated soul remains in from the moment of death until reincarnation um, basically and again this is a very crass metaphor and i apologize to those who know buddhism better than i do but similar to say purgatory um, in catholicism christianity and again i apologize for that crass metaphor but it's that kind of state in, in tibetan religious belief the bardo the helps the kind of soul move through the bardo and kind of gets it through there and helps it come out the other side into reincarnation. So death becomes birth uh, through that mechanism. Yes. But The bardo of the Doll is also a text that was usually important in terms of the occult and in terms of psychedelia uh, back in the kind of 1960s. And so you look at things like, say, uh, Timothy Leary, Ralph Metzer, and Richard Alpert, uh, published their own. I think it's the psychedelic experience in 1964, which was a guide for LSD trips that was loosely based on a translation of the Bard of the Doll, the Book of the Dead, um, and it's it's very much about getting inside the human mind and talking about it as. And I have a quote here: one of the oldest and most universal practices for the initiate to go through the experience of death before he can be spiritually reborn. And it's notable that, you know, we talked about the sound of snow where you have Alice, who's a character who's having these characters take trips that basically bring them into communion with their inner selves and help them reconcile with these crises inside themselves, which are very similar to how people who have taken these sorts of trips will talk about them. They'll say them, they'll treat them as voyages of self discovery. But even here, like, you have this idea of the soul leaving through the brain and this idea of kind of like forgiveness and absolution and understanding. And, you know, I I don't, um, this is where I clarify that I have never taken any mind-altering drugs, so I don't actually know what they're like outside of reading books and listening to people who have take them. But I, I kind of like the dream logic that drives episodes like Mardos Adol is very similar to reading the accounts of people who take these mind-altering substances and the connections that they go on and how they flow and how they follow. And I think that's kind of, that's an interesting subtext that runs through the season as a whole. This idea of not changing people, not changing ideals, but changing people, where it becomes this kind of Spiritual transformation, this kind of like mm-hmm. transubstantiation to use the the religious kind of language associated with it, um but this idea of kind of like transcending. And again, this this sounds really pretentious and weird and like I'm making excuses for the episode and I apologize, but transcending the the material world, man, and kind of like moving to a place where like plot logic doesn't matter because it just feels right. And again, that sounds like I'm being kind of condescending and dismissive. I'm not really. I think that's actually fascinating. And I admire that the show goes for it, um, which is kind of striking. Um, like to see a mainstream American show that operates on that Sort of weird dream logic where it's like, yeah, there's a there's a tub of hands and they're they're all the hands of this one dude and they're growing and also his own hand is infectious and that infection is spreading and consuming him and going to kill him, possibly, um, and it's all connected, but not in a literal sense, not in a scientific sense, but just in a, like a metaphorical and abstract sense where there's some sort of force shaping or guiding the universe that we lack the capacity to understand again, something I associate with like psychedelia and kind of like you know transcendence
1: yeah, it's, it's, I mean it's, it's such a, a wide scope to 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 fit into an episode like this as well and uh you know the the depths that they go to i just wanted to get your opinion actually on the uh, we are jumping around a bit i'm jumping to oh, a, yeah, back no. end of the episode so but i'm not i'm not concerned about that to be <laughs> honest, to actually honest, honest with you this is a chip Johannesson episode we're fine yeah. um, there
3: is no beginning yeah. or no end it's all just
1: one circle yeah. Kurt. it's all it's all <laughs> about predeterminism we're all right um yeah. but um the the fact the very fact that the the back end of the episode the the fi- finale is this this play, where you know you've got the the X Files aspect of like Emma like sneaking around, looking, seeing the the men in the in the in the um, in the vans, and seeing them loading up stuff, and she's walking around the the rooms and trying to sneak around, and finds the umbilical cords and things.
3: Worst conspirators but, ever. They don't even lock like the medical disposal bin. No, no. <laughs> so they don't lock that at all. But the the
1: very fact that it's you know we we get the. The, the the poster on the wall, you know, they said the woman's choice. I mean, what do you make to the, the, the very fact that, you know, it is in this clinic? It's not clear what type of clinic it is, but um, it's an interesting choice that they've done this at the back end of this episode.
3: Yeah, I mean, again, it, it's death and, and rebirth because, yeah. again, it's notable that like, the, the objects that she takes are umbilical cords with stem cells on them. And it is very much, it's a, a fertility place, at least. It's Or at least mm-hmm. it's interested in reproduction because when she shows up and she infiltrates, they're like, you know, so when did you become pregnant? Oh, no, no, we can determine that for you. Yeah. And again... It, again you wonder if stuff was cut from the episode or you wonder if it was left intentionally vague but you have this pairing of the idea of like the end of life and the beginning of life and the idea that frank is kind of with takahashi when he's dying and emma is going to this place where they like treat you know, again, is it, is it an abortion clinic? Is it a fertility clinic? Um, it's not entirely clear. Um, do they just take deliveries? Although they seem to like deal with patients as well, which yeah. is all very, very odd. But like this idea of this place that is linked with at least conceptually the start of life as well. And the idea that the two are, are somehow interlinked and connected. Again, it's the kind of logic that, that doesn't work if you stop and think about it. But like in terms of metaphor, it works or theme you can understand it quite well because it's it's the end and the beginning it's the beginning and the end it's these two things intertwined with one another and it's, it's odd because you get a sense that if it were a stronger episode it might have something interesting to say about that um In particular, say, around the use of stem cells and kind of the, the use, the way in which they're kind of tied to the idea of kind of like experimentation research and the way in which they're a hot button topic and the way in which kind of like, again, all the sorts of ethical issues and moral issues and particularly in the late 90s that were tied up in things like, say, stem cell research. But here there's so much going on that that detail is just kind of like crammed in and forgotten about. It's like, oh yeah. By the way, I stole a box full of umbilical cords I found in the trash. Now let's get to the actual. Let's get to the climax of this episode. It's yeah. it's very strange.
1: It is. It is very strange. Um, let's go back a little bit, though. Let's go back to um, Takahashi and Frank, uh, actually, in the Buddhist um, in the Buddhist church, because it, they talk about you know the fact that were you in the Millennial Group, and you know we've re- we've talked over the the very nature of um, you know the fact that bringing out your own your own end and stuff but um the, the the strength of this episode is the fact that it's two men talking in a room one one dying and it's that coming of death um and it is a very strong uh powerful image and powerful discussion that he, that he has with takahashi um but it, it, it is a very interesting thing because frank is so chilled out that maybe he's just coming you know and he just knows it's like well you're too late kind of thing um, but the way that it's, it's developed and you know there's no like um, you know other procedural tellies TV might have gone quick get him out of here he's, he's coming to get him kind of thing which is like let's just sit back and just go through the motion let's talk about death let's talk about the group what were you doing why were you with the Millennium Group what, what was this aspect of it what were they making you do were you trying to get out and all this kind of aspect of it is uh it's quite unique for a, for a TV show to do. And I, and I actually really like that part of the episode.
3: Oh, I do. And again, this is one of the things where, you know, if you wanted to be cynical and cold, you'd say that I'm cutting it far, far, far too much slack in that, like, making a show that is about chaos and about how the world doesn't make sense doesn't necessarily excuse you as a writer for creating something that doesn't make sense.
4: With Lucky Lance slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
3: and or kind of like doesn't go here but i i really like this and i admire it and i think that's why i'm kind of sensitive why i'm kind of so warm towards it is because and i think we talked about it when we talked about borrowed time it's a sense in which it it by making a story that is about how the world is chaotic and doesn't make sense, Johansson buys himself a lot of, like, goodwill from the audience in that, like, if you're telling a story about how the world doesn't make sense, it makes sense that the story you're telling won't necessarily kind of, like, cross every T and dot every I. Like, the wonderful thing, that the part that I really love about that conversation between Frank and Takahashi is, like, each of them thinks the other has the answers. Each of them thinks that the other will be able to explain in some fundamental level what's going on. Where, you know, like you have Frank saying, you know, we're racing towards an apocalypse of our own creation. Is is that how it starts? And Takahashi's like, they never let me see it. I I thought you would know. And Frank's mm-hmm. like, so you didn't send me the virus? And he's like, what virus? Um, and he's, you know, Frank's like, you know, the virus, the, the, the one that brought me here. And Takahashi's like, wait, I, I thought you came here because you have magic <laughs> visions. Like, I was told that you know how this works. It's your job to understand and explain this to me. And I kind of love that, like, you have this kind of bit towards the end where Takahashi doesn't, as he's dying, he doesn't have a full understanding of what's going on. Even he doesn't seem to comprehend everything that's happening. He doesn't know. The purpose of his research. He doesn't know what the Millennium Group is going to do with it. And to be frank, you know, without getting too spoilery, we don't necessarily find out what the Millennium <laughs> Group is going to do with it in the remaining stretch of episodes. And I like that aspect of the episode because, and I think this is maybe a key difference between Millennium and the X-Files. I think we talked about it in the second season a lot when we talked about, like, the difference between, like, conspiracy theories and, you know, the, the way in which the world works is, With conspiracy theories, they provide an understanding of the world where everything makes sense, where everything happens because it's part of a plan, where somebody is always in control. And there is always somebody who knows how things are supposed to be. And not only that, why things are the way they are. You know, even if you are powerless, even if you are disadvantaged, even if you are living A horrible life, a life that doesn't make sense to you. If you believe in conspiracy theories, you believe that there is somebody out there in the world who knows why your life is the way it is, who knows why you're living in the way you are, why you're facing the problems that you're facing, and why your life turned out the way that it did. And, you know, in many ways, that is easier than believing that the world is random, arbitrary, and unfair. Uh, believing that things happen not because of the whims of powerful men or because of people who control uh, the flow and the fate of kind of like nations and kind of economies and companies, uh, but instead because of market forces that operate kind of independently of one another and act on each other in ways that we cannot perceive or even fully understand. Because that's tantamount to accepting the world is chaotic and arbitrary and random and horrifying and that man has no control over the world in which he lives and that's frankly terrifying and i think that that's one of the big differences between millennium and the x-files the x-files believes that there is an explanation there is a truth there is something that will make sense of it all the truth is out there you just have to find it Mulder will uncover what happened to samantha and it might not be happy it might not resolve in a way that satisfies him it might not resolve in a way that satisfies viewers if we're being frank but it will explain what happened to her. Yeah. He will know what happened to her and the audience will know what happened to her and they will get those answers and with those answers will come closure and understanding. And The X-Files is is very much about that. Everything that happens is explained. And it's not always explained elegantly. It's not always explained in a way that, you know, is perhaps the most logical or a way that integrates perfectly with everything else that's explained. But there is always a truth, even if that truth is subsequently revealed as a lie to cover for a bigger truth. But there's always kind of like an ordering principle on the world. And even if that principle is always the cigarette smoking man is like, oh, well, I've done something terrible that you didn't realize I'd done up until this season where I explain how terrible it is with Millennium and particularly in the second season but even here what I love about it is that it, it says well actually no what if what if these powerful people who run the world what if these people who are making these decisions that affect millions of lives that profoundly alter the course of human history who change the direction of kind of like you know social development on the planet what if these people don't know More than we do? What if they don't have a bigger view of the the universe or mankind's place in the universe? Wouldn't that be terrifying? And so you have this wonderful sequence where Frank has come to the monastery to find this man he's been looking for, who is the key to his investigation, who is an insider who has done work with the Millennium Group, who is being hunted by the Millennium Group, and says, Give me the answers that I need. Tell me what I need to know before you die. And that man's response is, no, you're you're supposed to tell me what I need to know before I die. That's how this works. And neither of them is able to answer for the other. And I find that kind of, I find that interesting and striking and... As you point out, something that you don't see on television very often and something that I think is very clever and, to be honest, also surprisingly moving as well. And shout out to Zima, who plays the character of Takahashi as well, a veteran of film and and screen. And he's gone on to do really, really great stuff. Um, He was in the recent Mulan, for example, uh, but he was also in 24. He's very good in what's not necessarily the most showy of roles here, but that scene with him and Frank is is really touching. I, I find it really, really affecting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the um, the very fact that, you know, in the monastery, um, it, it was church, I couldn't think of the word, it was monastery I was trying to find before. <laughs> uh, the um, the very kind of end of that, and what I really like about it reflects back on Frank in second season is when he starts to say things like, um, you know, you're not alone, um, I'm going to be here when they come for you. Um, and the fact that he's saying things like, they've confused you, you know, they've taken all the goodness out of you, it's inside of you, twisted it and stuff like that. And uh, don't let them confuse you now. Undo what you've what you've done, and the fact that he's trying to like sort of the the oncoming death because obviously maybe this is the is death coming really. Yeah, that's the way it's portrayed, and that um, you know he Frank is kind of like just speaking to him as like just lay out you, you know make peace with everything. Just you know do do what you need to do. Don't let the Millennium Group like mud, muddy the waters and what they have been trying to do and have done to you, they've tried to do to me. And yeah. that aspect in that like paragraph of, of comment that Frank starts to talk with him just, just over the top of his head, I think is, is wonderful. And as I say, it's, it's a really emotional moment. I think it's, uh, it's played, played superbly by both actors.
3: Yeah, and again, it's it's not all, again, the two are reflections of one another, as you pointed out. Yeah. Like, when Frank is talking to, to Takahashi, he's basically saying, look, I've been where you are, I know what you're feeling, like... Again, that, that arc that he had in the second season and particularly the tension that he had with Catherine, where this question of whether or not he was going to be swallowed whole by the group, whether the group was turning him into something that he didn't want to be, whether it was making him paranoid and turning him against the people in his life who actually cared about him, whether it was alienating him from his family um, and all that sort of stuff that plays out. And I like that you you get this mirroring of kind of Frank with Takahashi, where like Frank if Frank believes that Takahashi can make peace, if Frank believes that Takahashi can be redeemed, if Frank believes that kind of Takahashi can move on and kind of like be reincarnated and become something new again, that means that Frank can as well. Because obviously, you know, again, Frank is carrying a lot of stuff around with him and understandably so. And one of the big themes of the third season, you know, most obviously in The Sound of Snow, where it's literalized when he actually gets that moment with Catherine, but throughout the season, there's a sense of a weight on Frank, a kind of a sense of, you know, he's carrying a burden, Um, and he's carrying a weight on his shoulders. And I love that in that moment with Takahashi and with Frank, and, you know, we, we mentioned earlier that like the beauty of the sequence is that neither of them knows the full picture. Neither of them understands what the Millennium Group is doing, yeah. much like the audience, I might add <laughs> there. Um, But like, despite that, they know each other as in they know each other in a fundamental sense because each of them has walked the same path. It may not be exactly the same path. It may not have been exactly the same choices and the same journey, but they both understand the same reservoir of kind of feeling. They're both reflected in each other. That human experience is kind of common. And again, it's something that is almost, again, very kind of psychedelic, that sense of, you know, communion, which is, again, a very religious theme as well. But this idea that there's something shared between the two, even though they're strangers um which I, I find again very affecting and very touching
1: mm, yeah and i think it's a, as i say it's a, it's a marvelous um marvelous scene um, it's uh, uh, there's a couple of bits that i wanted to mention which are completely kind of erroneous to be absolutely honest with you um one the laptop had a little red like mouse button in the middle of the keyboard yes i which remember I those totally <laughs> forgot about them I've, I've, yeah. I've, I've, oh, I've, oh i love i used to love those little things uh which i thought <laughs> which i thought was brilliant um and what else was i going to say and obviously the um what well, what else there was something else i was going to mention oh and the red the, the red ball just just on thinking about the red ball because they were they were talking about clearing just about uh, just in in relation to frank and and tagahashi's comments because peter does talk about the ball kind of it reflects yeah. candlelight more clearly and i think that's an interesting thematic approach on the ball I mean we haven't skirted around the ball because it's full of Rice Krispies but um, but but there's the ball that is thematically connected isn't it really
3: yeah and it's kind of chipped and damaged, much like Frank is. And again, it's notable that, like, there are two bowls that are chipped and damaged, because obviously he finds the chips um, in the first place, you know, in the kind of in the ship when he's wandering around the ship, and he finds the bowls missing, he finds a chip on the ground. Yeah. And then when he goes to the monastery, he finds the chi- more chips on the ground there, implying that there's actually been several chipped bowls. And again, not to get too heavy handed with the symbolism but you could argue that both Frank and Takahashi are chipped bowls and that they've both yeah. been damaged by their experience with the Millennium Group because symbolism. Because that's that's how the logic of a chip Johanneson script works. <laughs> it's like they're yeah, you know, there, there's a lot of subtext there may not be actual text but there's a lot of subtext um, yeah. it's like 90% subtext that's
1: <laughs> <laughs> amazing and and the other two things uh, at the pool set in like postules that um, obviously Tegahashi has I thought was really nice work makeup wise and then we've got Mavius yeah. with the whole knife through the arm I just wanted to get your <laughs> thoughts on that
3: <laughs> <laughs> Necessary, by the way (laughs) this guy's just working at a shop minding his own business and it's just like boom knife through the arm badass old guy and it's like yeah that feels like it kind of like draws unnecessary attention um to like what he's doing to what the millennium group is doing because i feel like they don't necessarily have the pull to cover up you know at the very least, China shop owner gets arm impaled through shop, or you know, China shop owner shop owner mysteriously disappears, um, <laughs> and signs of struggle in shop. Yeah, it, it, again, it, it's very dramatic and it's very effective, and there's a real sense of well, we need an action beat in order to get like to the commercial break to it. And it is it's shot very well by Thomas J. Wright. I love the low angles. I love the shot of him just grabbing the arm because let's let's be honest, uh, maybe as you know, the actor who plays plays um, Mabius, who is, um, and I'm searching Wild. for the name, Bob Wilde is maybe yeah. not, he's not the, the string chicken necessarily in terms of, like, I can't imagine him doing, like, proper fight sequences, but it's shots that he looks very impressive when he's doing it. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it feels very superfluous to what's actually happening. It's completely unnecessary. And you get a real sense of, like, well, I was carrying a knife anyway and I kind of wanted to use it. So it was always going to end in this even if the guy didn't actually know anything. How embarrassing would it be if maybe it opened the guy's hand and there wasn't a bowl chip in it? Like if <laughs> if he left like the chip the bowl chip over at the desk at his study on the other end of the table. How awkward would that be?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Um, so yeah, so there's that. I just wanted to give a shout out, shout out, obviously to James Hong as well because you know he's uh, a renowned actor that, that appears in this and, and supports. I mean, his, his role is very standard for considering the type of episode it is, but uh, but he does it with a great aplomb as, as usual. You know, he's, he's always yeah. good when he's on screen, isn't he? Yes,
3: he is, I think something like two hundred, sorry, six hundred credits. Um, perhaps one of the most prolific actors to have worked in Hollywood, uh, which is astounding because um, he's worked since the fifties. Uh, and amazing and again as you point out maybe not the most like you know not even the role that i think of when i think of him in the 1013 verse if we're being entirely frank um but i think he, he does good work with this and i again he's the fact he's just called monk and the fact he's very generic it could like it could be a little bit kind of culturally insensitive but i feel like the episode is so gonzo and so weird and so abstract that the fact that like the episode doesn't like humanize or develop any of the Tibetan monks isn't isn't an example of it being culturally insensitive. It's just the way that the episode is written. Yeah. Um, in that, like the, the supporting characters, I'm here looking at IMDb, and the supporting characters are literally like biotech, harbor cop, shopkeeper, passenger. <laughs> agent guard and hotel clerk um so it kind of like I the fact that he is a very generic character kind of doesn't feel like it's just oh well it's it's because it's buddhism and we need a character who does buddhism um it feels very much like as well that's just how the episode is written and Hong yeah Hong does good work i think with it in that he's mostly asked to deliver these kind of like you know voiceovers which are very leaden with well this is the theme of the episode that we're talking about here just in case you don't get it takahashi has also been alienated from his family much like somebody who you may know on this show perhaps um but yeah no i I think it works i think it works enough
1: yeah yeah definitely so that brings the episode to a close is there anything that you feel that i've missed that you want to bring up
3: no I i think i think it's pretty good i mean i yeah just the hands i have no why why hands like what is what is the end game here are they planning to like operate a series of like dead dead man switches simultaneously or something like that is what what do you think the end game was with the hands for the Millennium group
1: to to grow a new osmond family so they can have a band (laughs) and that was it that was all it was for because they're caucasian as well aren't they
3: are they not takahashi okay i thought that's right but how did they connect to takahashi then I love, by the way, that like Emma when she's doing the search for it. Yeah, they are they are uh, cocazoid, which Cocoside, is interesting. Yes, that's the word they okay.
1: use. Yes, yeah. So why? Okay. So I don't. Yeah. I still don't get why.
3: <laughs> it's. Let's just say it's a very strange episode.
1: Yeah, yeah. Let's let's leave it. Let's leave it at that. Let's leave it at that. Um, yeah. So that's uh, that draws the episode to a close. So Darren, you will be back later in the season. There's not much of the season left. But you'll be back later in the season, um, <laughs> so. So, like a threat or a promise? It's, um, uh, it's maybe both, maybe both. But um, where in, in the meanwhile, though, if anyone wants to see or listen or watch, even because I know that you're on YouTube now, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is which is that fantastic. is a threat. <laughs> that is, that is a threat. Um, if you want to find you online, where can people do that? And what are you are up to at the moment?
3: All right, so as as you alluded to there, I am on YouTube. Um, I'm hosting a series there with the Escapist, which is in the frame. I also do coverage of WandaVision with them as well, with the wonderful Jack Packard and the fantastic Casey Wosu. Um, I also co-host the Escapist Movie Podcast with again with the fantastic Jack Packard and a rotating pool of guests. Um, so those release kind of relatively constantly. I think that by the time that this will be released, we will have moved to doing the movie podcast live as an experiment. So I think it'll be around Monday evening times at the UK, Monday afternoons um, in. The us so you want to check those out um give us a subscription or even just listen to past episodes uh we'd really really appreciate that i also write at the escapist where i write two columns weekly uh in the frame and occasionally just write pop, pop pop occasionally just write pop culture coverage as well there um so if you want to get in touch there uh that's fantastic you can find me on twitter um at darren mooney i write at the movie blog with a zero instead of an o because i didn't register quick enough in the com gold rush and i co-host a podcast with my good friend andrew quinn and i think that as you're listening to this, the episodes that we will be releasing, if you're a patron, uh, next, f- next Saturday, will probably be, uh, covering Jurassic Park with the fantastic Jess Dunn and the wonderful Alex Tower, Steven Spielberg's 1993 Dino Classic. Um, if you are not a patron, if you're listening at regular release speed, um, we'll be covering the fantastic, um, a Clockwork Orange, Stanley Kubrick's Clockwork Orange with the wonderful, uh, Eva Martin. So those will be the episodes that'll be released as we're on there. You can find us on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on iTunes. Just give us a quick search, the 250. Uh, and you'll find us easily enough, I hope.
1: Excellent stuff. I might have to watch *A Clockwork Orange* in anticipation for that now. I haven't, I have you never seen that, it? No, no, I haven't. No, it's Don't one I? film that I, that I've always wanted to see, and, and never for some reason, it's never entered the uh, the opportunity to do that. So I might, I might yeah. do that. I've got a month now. Or you it? So yeah. exactly. And you can also
3: just rewatch. Uh, you can rewatch uh, *Jurassic Park* as well.
1: Uh, well yeah, it's very seen, rewatchable. I, I think I've seen *Jurassic Park* maybe a few <laughs> times. That was actually my my first cinema experience when wow. um not first cinema experience but the first cinema experience on my own as a as oh, a 13 wow. as a 13 year old yeah yeah so because i was 13 with 1993 nice. that's a hell of a one all right so it was nice nice uh nice view on that and then i think after that it was uh star trek six that's the oh. uh wow that's, that's a pretty good
3: that's a pretty good too for it to be honest um, yeah. star and trek six is hot take the best star trek movie
1: Yes, and I think actually I remember always once being being the teenage kid that I I was, and this is this is um this may well stay in the edit. Um, <laughs> was that we wanted to go and see striptease when we, um, originally, and went to the, went to the pictures, <laughs> and striptease had sold out, so we weren't happy. You know, we wanted to see a bit of Demi Moore, but um, we you ended up to see wa- more Demi Moore. Yeah, exactly. But we ended up watching Multiplicity by Michael Keaton. <laughs>
3: Uh, yeah, no. I have my own, mem- my own sort of experience like that, where I remember going to the cinema and we wanted to go and see uh, Blade Two, uh, Guillermo del Toro's Wesley Snipes vampire movie, yes. and it was rated over eighteen in Ireland. And I had a goatee and a ponytail because I was the coolest 14 year old in my year. And I went up first and I got my ticket and I actually managed. I didn't even get stopped for ID. It was like, yeah, I want to go see Blade 2. They're like, well, you have a, you a goatee and a ponytail, sir. You look like you were over 18. Here is your ticket. Everybody else went after me and couldn't get tickets. So I ended up going to see Blade 2 while they all went to see Britney Spears and Crossroads. That's my.
1: Um, ah, <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent stuff. Oh, it's amazing. Um, yeah. So, but anyway, yes. Um, if I go back to my podcasting, I also am on a One Division <laughs> um, journey. Ooh. I've been um, looking at One Division for the Podcast Six One Six podcast, which nice. is our newest Marvel podcast on the We Made This Podcast Network. And you can find that on Twitter at Podcast Six One Six. You can find me uh, just on my own Twitter account at R Muldrake. It's R M U L D R A K E. Find me on the Red Dwarf podcast, Shipwrecked and Comatose at Red Dwarf Pod. Uh, find me on the X cast, the X underscore cast, which is running not too far away from each other with regards to yeah. um, release scheduled. It's about a few weeks out, but not too far away. So we are covering season six of The X-Files at the moment. Um, and Jean-Luc Podard, um, I've just this week received my Star Trek Picard season one Blu-ray. So I'm well chuffed for that. Ooh. So we'll be covering the special features on that. And we have recently, not myself, uh, Tony and Lucas looked at the uh, Dark Veal uh, by James Swallow. So they've just recently done that. So make it so the Star Trek uh, Picard podcast is back up and running as well. So there's numerous other ones that I'm probably on that I've probably forgotten about. So the best <laughs> thing to do is to find me on Twitter at rmuldrake. So R-M-U-L-D-R-A-K-E. So Darren, thank you again for, for joining me. It's been a, a pleasure as always.
3: Perfect. It's been a, jo- a joy for me as well. And I look forward to being back.
1: Yes and uh, yeah we'll be back in, in in next week for for next week's episode and and think you'll be back in two or three weeks time. So until next time everyone just always remember this is who we are. Elsewhere, and we made this.
2: Frame to frame. I mean, that was very nearly a James Stewart impression.
3: Oh, God damn it! There's, there's supposed to be reindeer around here, but gosh darn it, I can't see them anywhere else. Oh, gosh darn reindeer around here. Anyway, sorry. Um,
2: that I would have loved to see. Bad Santa and <laughs> James Stewart is what I would absolutely have adored to see. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine. Completely going against type. So, see the there, Sonny, what topic. would you like for Christmas there? Um, that would just be... <laughs> <laughs> no, this. I, I don't care that we're the podcast. This is just for me now. Can you, as James Stewart, say the word fuckstick? Fuckstick. <laughs> <It's not good. laughs> see i think this is where we actually tip over from semi-professional to non-professional no i know we should get back i mean we discussed the themes of the of the film can i can i just say my impressions very rarely bring you joy maybe this is just the magic of christmas is kind of like pickling your brain a little bit and it's just making your faculties dim um, i that or it's that nine percent porter that i'm drinking one yeah, of the exactly other. yeah yeah <laughs> Life's milestones. Before we went to the fight, people testing out the shurikens on them on the doors and you know, go, oh look, it's coming to the door. That'll do. That works. And I'll use that for the fight later on. Crackers. Absolutely true. It never would never happen. Now wouldn't even get to no. that stage. But yeah, one side of the school would fight the other side of the school. Girls included.
0: Good grief! I'm glad I didn't go to your school.
2: free with this month's issue. Last year's we had six CDs to choose from, one of which was a Christmas CD. Yeah, we've got the remaining five because we fired one bullet on the Russian roulette. Yep. So last year we had Metal Hammer's Razor, so the remaining five in the chamber Mm. are X-Ray CD 11 from X-Ray Magazine, Radio Karang Volume 1, Mojo's Blue Christmas, which is the bullet, at least for Ian anyway, Steve Lemax Bootleg Session Volume 3 from Melody Maker and Rock Sound Music with Attitude Volume 32. Check out all of these shows and more on the We Made This Podcast Network.
1: Time is now. A Millennium podcast was created by Tony Black and is produced by Tony Black and Kurt North. We can be found on Twitter at the Time is Now Pod, or by searching Facebook for the Time is Now. We are part of the We Made This Podcast network, which can be found on Twitter at We Made This Pod, or on the website WeMadeThisPod.com. For bonus material and exclusives, check out our sister show, the XCast and XFiles podcast, where you can find our Patreon. This. Is who we are.